A very good morning to you. It's very nice to see you all this morning. If you've got to grab your seat, grab your donut, grab your Bible, you're going to need one of those. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some lying around somewhere. If you, if you don't have a Bible uh, and there's some lying around maybe at the back, please feel free to take one. We would love to give you a Bible, but please don't take it home and use it as a doorstop. Take it home and read it, um, particularly in this current season. Um, because I wonder maybe if we have a bit of a problem with the Bible. Can I say that? Is that okay to say in church? Maybe we have a bit of a problem with the Bible. Uh, one of the questions I suppose I've got is, um, are any of us actually reading the Bible? I'm not asking you to answer that out loud, um, but just between you and the Lord, how many of us here in this room actually read our Bibles? Like, you know, um, every day, like maybe for like 10 minutes or so, just question. Or how many of us have actually ever read the Bible from cover to cover? Not in one sitting, but just over a period of time. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that because I'm trying to shame us. I'm not trying to make us feel guilty or bad. I'm just wondering whether the way that we think we feel about the Bible is actually the way that we feel about the Bible, if that makes sense. The reality is that the Bible is the best-selling book every year. It sells something like 25 million copies every year, and yet it's famously been called the number one bestseller that no one's ever read. Novelist Jesse Ball says, the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have never read it. Ouch. Increasingly, the Bible is less read than ever. Yes, we listen to Bible teaching at church, if you can stay awake long enough. Or maybe we do a podcast on the Bible when we go to the gym. Or maybe we have a devotional that's got kind of half a verse, maybe taken out of context at the top. Or we subscribe to a daily message in our inbox, our email with a verse or two. But the question I have really is, do we read the Bible anymore? Do we actually just read it? That's the first possible problem that we have. Second is, do we know how to read the Bible? Um, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The truth of the matter is that the Bible is pretty complicated. It's pretty dense. You know, there's a lot in the scriptures for us to get our heads around. Heads around. The, the Bible certainly isn't Harry Potter. Um, it's not an easy read. It's a library of 66 ancient books. They're very, very different from one another. They're very different in tone. Sometimes they're different in theology at times. It's written, it was written in, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. It was written some two to three sort of millennia ago. It's set somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in Africa. And so when we get to actually opening up this book and digging into it, we step into this strange and alien world and, and quite naturally a fair few of us we just like I don't even know where to begin I don't know how to read this and then maybe I wonder if there's an even deeper issue 
some of us know how to read the Bible. That's not the problem. Um, it's just that we don't actually like the Bible. For starters, um, it's, some of it's pretty weird, if we're honest. I mean, there's, you know, on page three, there's a talking snake. That's quite odd. Um, a lot of it, again, if we're being honest, um, is mind-numbingly boring. And if that offends you, uh, have you ever have you read Leviticus or Numbers recently? I mean, it's pretty hard going for the most committed of us. Uh, I get it. It's tedious. It's kind of law after law after law after law. That can only be so interesting for so long. And then I wonder, now I'm really venturing onto thin ice, um, I wonder if there may be an even deeper challenge that some of us have with the Bible and um, that some of us actually take issue with the Bible. That actually the Bible offends us. You know, I wonder if there's been some kind of major tectonic shift over the past few generations. I don't know. I wonder if previous generations would have read something like, I don't know, Joshua chapter 3. You know, the story of the fall of Jericho. And, and maybe people in the past, people maybe here in this room, would have read it and Joshua's marching around the city of Jericho for seven days and he's blasting some trumpets before the city is finally raised to the ground. And in the past, whether people would have read that story and gone, wow, God is with me. Um, I'm not alone. Victory is mine. I can face anything with God at my side. Nothing is impossible. But then I wonder whether a whole new generation um, are reading that self-same story and seeing nothing but genocide. They see something that looks remarkably like ethnic cleansing, all done in the name of the God that we worship. And then, uh, having read that and other stories like it, how am I supposed to reconcile all of that with what I know to be true about Jesus and what Jesus says about like nonviolence and what Jesus says about loving our enemies? Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. Um, the Bible is rich. The Bible is full of so much that is rich and beautiful and true and mysterious. Um, this book is wonderful. Uh, there's a reason why people will risk life and limb to smuggle the Word of God across borders. This book, the Scriptures, they have shaped certainly Western civilization, you know, all the good parts of it, certainly from, um, from the ground up. But... At the same time, we can't just ignore the fact that contained within its pages is some really, really challenging stuff. It's really difficult. There is um, there's polygamy and incest and rape and sexism and racism and war and violence and revenge, all kinds of really, really challenging stuff. And it's not just that that stuff is in the Bible. I mean, there's lots of stuff in the Bible. It's just that it, a lot of it, that stuff is... Uh, is in the people of God in the Bible. Uh -huh. What am I supposed to do with that? So you read about Abraham in Genesis, and Abraham's like the hero of the faith. You know, it kind of makes it into Hebrews 11. It's like, amazing, this guy. Love Abraham. But why did he have to be a polygamist and a misogynist and a pretty terrible father? And then we read about David, and like, David, oh, this amazing guy, a man after God's own heart, and he, he's a poet, and he's a worship leader, and we love him to bits, but why does he have to be a war criminal, and an adulterer, and a murderer, and the hero? Ugh, it just 
makes it all so confusing. There's a lot of challenging stuff in here. And then there's all kinds of questions that we have. What is it about the New Testament when it kind of quotes and cites the Old Testament, but it seems and feels like it's a bit strange, it's a bit out of context? What about the fact that the Bible feels sometimes like it's full of contradictions that we don't quite know how to get our head around, or even errors? Why is it that there are so many different ways of interpreting this book? Like, what is that about? Couldn't it have been a little bit easier? Like, working out what the book is actually saying. You know, some people read the Bible, and, okay, just as an example, something like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Things like healing or prophecy or words of knowledge, things that we here in this part of the body of Christ, we love and celebrate, we believe that they are here, that they're for us, for now, they're demonstrations of the kingdom of God here and now. Well, for a significant part of the body of Christ, Bible-believing Christian churches, that's borderline heresy. And they very much believe that that was then, and this is now, and that's different. These, these things, these signs and wonders, they're nothing more than over-enthusiastic excesses of the lunatic fringe. That's us, by the way. And there's a serious question of whether some of this bit of the lunatic fringe will actually even make it into heaven, whatever that means. You know, and you're like, well, who's right and who's wrong? Like, couldn't it be a little bit more straightforward? And then that brings up all other kinds of things. It's a great morning. Um, buckle, buckle up. Um, what about all the terrible things and strange things that have been done in the name of the Bible? I mean, the slave trade was legitimized. It was built off the back of the scriptures. Genocide, imperialism. Parents who to this day won't treat their children with some very simple medical procedure because of a strange interpretation of a little verse somewhere in James. In churches across the world, there are Christians who are spending their Sunday morning handling snakes because of a verse in Mark chapter 16. Or you've got fundamentalist Mormon polygamists who are taking wife two, three, or four, age 12, or 13, or 14, because it's in the Bible, apparently. A lot of stuff has been done, still being done, in the name of the Bible says. A Jewish uh, scholar speaking in a very different way that the Jews read the Old Testament from Christians writes, you Christians see the Bible as a message to be proclaimed. We Jews see it as a problem to be solved. And the truth is, there's a growing number of Christians and you're here in this room, um, in particular young urban followers of Jesus who are starting to see the Bible in the same way as a problem, as um, more of a liability than an asset. And so, to be honest, I have absolutely no idea why I'm doing this. Uh, I feel like I'm about to go for a leisurely mid-morning swim in shark-infested waters. Um, I feel like my inbox is going to be full this week, so I'm going to take a week's holiday. Um, but I think we need to grapple with this somehow as a church. Um, and so in the run-up to summer, we're going to be doing a series on the Bible. <laughs> uh, maybe. I might change my mind, depending on how today goes. Um, and really what I mean by that is the authority of the Bible. You know, what is the Bible? Why read it? Why believe it? Why trust it? Why do we think this book matters. Um, and in short, just to give um, some of you the opportunity to stop hyperventilating as you call sort of heresy alert hotlines, 
Um, the short answer to all of these questions and more is very simply the Bible matters uh, to us because we're followers of Jesus. The Bible matters to us because we're followers of Jesus. There are all sorts of other reasons, but that is head and shoulders at the top of the pile. Why read the Bible? Why trust it? Why does it matter? Well, very basically, it matters because we follow Jesus. We love Jesus. And if you know anything about Jesus, you'll know that he was passionate about the Bible. He would read it. He would quote it. He would teach it. He'd preach it. He trusted it. He was under its authority. He memorized it. Chances are that Jesus had the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi memorized so that he could quote from it at any point on any given day, which he did on a scarily regular basis. And Jesus was a rabbi, after all, which basically means that he was a professional teacher of the scriptures. So this book, the scripture, the Old Testament, was his bread and butter. He was a rabbi. He was a Bible teacher. And as followers of Jesus, as we walk and learn to walk in his steps, our goal is to have the same kind of relationship with the Bible that Jesus did. So I thought I should maybe start by looking at something of what was Jesus' relationship with the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, which of course you all have, rustling of leaves, I love to hear. <laughs> Please do me a favor, just, just, just like patronize me, right? And for no other reason than just because I've asked you, could you please come to church like with one of these? Just, just like, I know we've got iPhones and stuff like that, but like, just find one of these, take one, and then we'll, they're free, right? And please, every one of us, bring it every single week. I could be saying anything. I could make it all up. Like, this is important to us as a church, right? We need to look at it, we need to grapple with it. Please, be grateful for the fact that you have access to this. Please be grateful for the fact that we can meet together without fear or recrimination, where so many of our brothers and sisters around the world can't do that. Please don't despise that freedom and treat it and take it for granted. So please, bring your Bibles every week. Matthew chapter 5, famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been at Pub Gospels, um, which we've been doing, uh, in the crooked bill at this time, you'll, you'll have a head start. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus. Uh, and when he says the law of the prophets, that's a very first century Jewish way of saying the Bible. You know, the Bible of the time, the Old Testament. And the phrase abolish, what it means is uh, to ditch or to move on from or throw away or discard the Bible. And Jesus is saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law or the Bible until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Three things just want to pull out from there about Jesus' view of the Bible. The, um, Jesus' view was that the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in him, in Jesus, in his life. Verse 17, I've not come to abolish the law, 
uh, and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. Verse 18, it says, until everything is accomplished. When Jesus reads the scripture, he's, he's, he's not reading it like as an encyclopedia or as like a textbook, which some of us can fall into. Jesus is reading this collection of books as a story, a long, very drawn out narrative about God and about human history, both um, where it's coming from and where it's going. And it's a story that all builds up. It's all pointing to one thing. It's all pointing towards Jesus. It's reaching its culmination, its climax, its fulfillment in Jesus, in his coming and in his birth and in his life and in his teaching and his miracles and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. It's all a story that reaches its climax in Jesus. Uh, Secondly, uh, to Jesus, the Bible is trustworthy. It's reliable. Um, Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And and the first clue is that Jesus is saying, truly I tell you, which is like pay attention, this is important, Uh, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter in the Greek, that's iota. Iota is the smallest Greek letter, not the smallest letter in the Greek is going to disappear. Not the least jot. It's like, um, it's not even an accent in the original language. It's like, a, it's like a, a pronunciation dot in the written text. Not even that tiny little dot which just helps you with your pronunciation of the word is going to disappear. That's not going to pass away. And, and it's like, this is about as high a view as the Bible, of the Bible as you can possibly get from the mouth of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was ever, whenever he was faced with some question about the Bible, he, he wouldn't rail against the scripture. He wouldn't dismiss the Bible. What he might do is he might take people to task over their misreading of it. Absolutely. For Jesus, the problem wasn't the Bible. For Jesus, it was much more around the way that the Bible is being read or the way the Bible is not being believed, or the way the Bible is being misinterpreted, or the way that we're reading it and looking at it through some kind of strange bias. But for Jesus, the Bible is trustworthy. And then thirdly, Jesus says the Bible is authority. Have a look at verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, and what he's saying is they're like anything in here, anyone who teaches people accordingly, if we're saying, oh, you know what, um, yeah, I know what it says in there, but like, I don't think you have to really worry about that. Don't, don't fuss. It's not a big deal. Just do what you feel like feels right to you, and you'll be fine. Now yeah, we're in a risky place there. We'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So in Jesus' view, it would seem that we are to come under the authority of the Bible. To understand the Bible literally means to stand under the Bible. But before some of the others of you freak out, right? everyone's freaking out today, um, before some of the others of you freak out, Jesus um, was no closed mind sort of dogmatic fundamentalist. Not at all. Uh, in fact, have a skip down to verse 21. Let's have a look at some of this Sermon on the Mount. Verse 21. This is Jesus. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. This is a quote from the Bible. You shall not murder. And then there's interpretation of the Bible because he says, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But, verse 22, I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Interesting. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery end quote, quote, 
from the Bible, verse 28, whatever it is, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Skip down to verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago. This is a quote from the Bible. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, quote from the Bible, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, quote from the Bible, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, I'm not sure that's actually there, but um, that's an interpretation, perhaps. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's going on here? What is all this about? I think this is about Jesus calling out all kinds of popular readings and misreadings of the Bible from his first century Jewish world. And there's stuff in here on marriage and divorce and sexuality and violence and 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 and. And here's what I think we need to grasp this morning. To Jesus, as we've seen from what we've just read, you have heard it said, but I say to you. It's like Jesus saying, you know what, the Bible is in constant need of debate and dialogue and reading and rereading and rethinking from the ground up all the time. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And all of this, all the stuff that Jesus is saying in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount is about us getting back to the heart of the text, the heart of the scriptures, the things that God is wanting to communicate with us. The Bible is something that we have to grapple with. We have to wrestle with. And it's something that we grapple with and we wrestle with, not in isolation, but in community, together as the fellowship of the saints. And it's something that we have to constantly grapple with and we have to read and we have to reread and we have to debate and we have to rethink and we have to bring our Bibles with us on a Sunday so that we know what's actually in there so that we can have those conversations uh, and we can have those conversations with one another with all humility and with all wisdom and with as much skill as we can possibly find and as much intelligence as we can possibly find with as much of an open mind as we can possibly find with one eye to sound doctrine and to church history, we have to come at this book like that, all the time, I think. And why do we have to come at it like that? There's a fascinating story um, about Jesus in the Bible from Mark chapter 12. Verse 35, it says this, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. So again, as far as we can tell, Jesus is teaching the Bible in the temple courts. And he's there and he asks, why do the teachers of the law, and what he's saying is, why do the professional Bible teachers of the day, why do they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, this is verse in 36. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. And then there's this quote from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus goes on to interpret all of that, which we don't have time to go into right now. What I want to see, I want us to see is um, Jesus' quote of Psalm 110. Notice the way that Jesus describes it in verse 36. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit. You see, to Jesus, the Bible is both divine and human. 
And we'll attempt to cover this in more detail over the coming weeks, but for now, because I'm really short on time, um, here's the short version, just to maybe get us thinking a little. Right across the church, um, to this day, tragically, there's this um, conservative and liberal divide. The other day I was talking to somebody from here and we were talking about something uh, that could be perceived as being a slightly more liberal interpretation of a particular scripture. And there's this idea that liberal is like a dirty word. So we even talk about something wrong with it. It's a dirty word, bad word. And so what that means is that we find ourselves very easily stuck in this either or, us versus them way of thinking about the scriptures. Now, as a general rule, this is a generalization, conservatives emphasize the divine aspect of the scriptures. And so the conservative end of the spectrum would emphasize the fact that the Bible is scripture. It is the word of God. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 is the all-time favorite verse of the conservatives. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, correcting, in right, uh, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. Do you know what I mean? It's a fantastic, beautiful verse, right? Whereas the more liberal or progressive end of the spectrum would emphasize the human side of the scriptures. And so uh, the Bible is viewed more as literature, for want of a better word, to be um, interpreted uh, uh, as kind of as man's thoughts from a very long time ago about God and about life and, and it's poetic and it's beautiful and it's rich, but most of it, if we're honest, is outdated and it's out of step with the, with the modern mindset. Now, these two sides, the conservative and the liberal end of the church, right? they're all Bible-believing, they're all Christian, although it depends on who you ask. Some people would say some bits of them aren't, but whatever. Let's just, for argument's sake, say we're all in the same boat. But these two sides lob um, grenades, basically, to and fro at each other. You know, we spend a lot of time lobbing church grenades at either end of the spectrum, depending on where we find ourselves sitting the trouble is, is that this either-or way of thinking is really, really off track. It's like it's crazy. We've been doing it for years. How many people died over infant or adult baptism? What, what were we thinking? To Jesus, like pretty much everything about the kingdom... It, I am not sure whether it's quite so black and white as either or. I wonder if it's a little bit more both. And David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, said, to Jesus, the Bible is divine, speaking by the Holy Spirit, and it's human. David himself said, David wrote that, Paul wrote that, Moses wrote that, and it's okay. You know, there's no need for us to freak out. It's not some dirty little secret that needs to be kept in some kind of broom cupboard. The Bible's not hiding the fact that it has human fingerprints all over it. Paul says, you know, Paul to the church in Corinth. Um, Paul, he says, you know, basically, this is a paraphrase, um, I don't really know what Jesus thinks about this, but here's my opinion. That's basically a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says uh, in verse 12, to the rest, I say this. And in brackets, he puts, I, not the Lord. And just before that, he said to the others, I say this, in brackets, the Lord, not I. And so you've got this kind of two-way thing going of like, 
which bit is from the Lord, which bit is from Paul. The Bible's not scared to open up and say, both inspired by the Spirit of God and by the work of David or Solomon or Paul or Peter or Jude or whoever. You know, the Bible's written by men, maybe even written by women, and at the same time, inspired by the Spirit of God. It is Scripture. It is a sacred writing. We are not just reading the Odyssey. We're not reading Chaucer. We're not just reading Milton or Shakespeare or Harry Potter for that matter. We are reading Scripture. And it is sacred. But it's also literature. Um, in parts, it's poetry and biography and genealogy. I mean, it's even had like a, a there's like data entry from a census which it makes for a right riveting read. You know, in other parts, it's like parable, and in other parts, it's allegory, and in other parts, there are epistles. It's, it's scripture and it's literature. It's divine and it's human. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, said. And these two things are not at odds with one another. They are most definitely in tension with one another, as we know, but they are not at odds with one another. And that's... Um, it's so true of so much of the Christian faith. As, as followers of Jesus, we're constantly having to work out how to live in these tensions. We don't want them. We want it to be absolute, either or. We want black and white. We love black and white. Tell me what to think. Tell me what to believe. Tell me the answer. And it's like, no, 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 it's not that simple. We need to have a conversation, a dialogue, honestly and openly, in conversation with the Lord and with one another. One of the things that I find interesting, actually, is that Jesus himself got a fair amount of flack about his interpretation of the Scripture, his reading of the Scripture. On the one hand, Jesus got grief from the Pharisees, and they're arguably the closest thing that we have to a more conservative end of a spectrum. And, on the other, Jesus got it in the neck from the Sadducees, and they're arguably the closest thing that we have to a more liberal end of the spectrum. And so Jesus himself is getting it in the neck from both the conservatives and the liberals, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. How are we supposed to be able to work our way through it? 500 years or so ago, back in the good old days, the authority figures in society um, were the Bible and the priest. Um, and the priest would tell us what the Bible says, and that would be the end of the matter. How we long for those heady days. And then this annoying thing like, called the Enlightenment came along, and suddenly science and education was like preeminent, and all authority was suddenly vested in science and education. That became the sort of font of all authority and wisdom. And now we've moved past all of that, as you know, and we've moved into this exciting, brave new world of post-modernity, um, this post-Christian, post-secular, post-post-post uh, world. And now, all authority is vested in what is being described and heralded as the autonomous self. Hurrah. You are now the final arbiter of truth. All authority now lies in your hands. Also, our culture would have us believe. Whatever you say goes. It's your truth. And all of this has a massive implication and impact on our relationship uh, with not only the Bible, it has a massive implication on our relationship with Jesus, it has a massive impact on our relationship with God. 
uh, as more and more and more, rather than mankind made in the image of God, we are seeing God being made into the image of whatever mankind would like him or her or it to be. And so, as more of us live as if we are the final authority on truth, this idea of having to come under anything, actually, um, not only Jesus, which can be a bit of a struggle, but sort of, I'm sort of okay about that, but the Bible as well. You always come under the Bible. It's like, it's, it's ancient and dusty and irrelevant. It's like a collection of stories from days of yore, and it's like full of violence and prejudice and challenge. Like, I'm not doing that. Like, I don't want to do that. It's like, uh, no. So, one question for us would be, is the Bible authority or is it not? And it would be great if we could just nip back to the heady days of the pre-enlightenment where I could get away with saying, yes, absolutely, totally, it is. Amen. Um, the truth is, uh, we all know that it's not that simple. Because yes, the Bible is authoritative. Um, but there's a lot in the Bible. I mean, there's, there, is, there is a lot in the Bible that, that has um, no ambiguity at all. Some of the stuff that's in here is just absolutely clear, right? No matter what we kind of try and reposition as being our interpretation of truth. You know, you shall not commit adultery. I mean, we can try our very best to go, oh, well, when you say adultery, like, what do you mean by that? What does that actually mean? You know, it's uh, sort of Clinton-esque. You know, I did not have sexual relationships with that woman. Like, oh, that's what you mean by sexual relationships. Oh, well, yes, then probably I did for some of you who are old enough to remember. Um, it's obviously clear, right? Don't commit adultery. But then, like that said, there's a lot, there's a lot that's a lot less clear, infuriatingly, at least to me. See, most of the, most of the Bible, at least like 50% of it, is stories, like narrative. So, back to my earlier example, um, in what ways is the story of Joshua marching around Jericho for seven days that results in the death of men, women, and children? In what ways is that authoritative over my life? Um, I got into trouble a few weeks ago. I preached from Genesis, and we were talking about, I think it's uh, Tamar and is it Reuben. Um, in what way is a story about some guy who has sex with his daughter-in-law um, because she's become a, effectively a prostitute, and then he wants to burn her alive. Like, uh, we looked at that a few... Uh, what, what way is that authoritative in our lives? And can I, as I was challenged, you know, can we teach on a Sunday morning from that? Can we use texts where women are treated and denigrated in such a horrific way? Is that okay for us to do? Um, to what extent is that authoritative in our lives? Or what are, we, are we supposed to just ignore it? I mean, I get emails. Whenever I preach from the Old Testament, I'll often get an email going, please stop preaching from the Old Testament. I'm like, what? It's, not, it's no longer relevant. I'm like, well, that's crazy. Like, please don't preach the way you preach from the Old Testament. I get that, right? But, you know, <laughs> like, like, please do a better job. I mean, that's, I, that's understandable. But you can't just say, please don't preach from the Old Testament. Well, I mean, you can. I'm not, you can say what you like, but I may not agree with you. Um, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just ignore it completely? You know, just like grab our Bibles and go, okay, anything like from about here on in, we're just going to rip it out. Are we supposed to ignore it? Are we supposed to just tipex it out? 
Then there's all sorts of commands in the Bible that most of us would agree are for all people of all time. For example, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. And, and we're kind of like, is that just for Jesus' his disciples at the time, or is that for everyone? Is that for Jew, Gentile, 1st century, 21st century? And then there are all sorts of stuff in the Bible, which is, um, it's more local, it's more specific. I mean, a silly example would be um, Jesus commanding James and John to go to the village and get a donkey. You know, um, we read that passage, and hopefully most of us here realize that we're not supposed to jump on a plane and go to Bethphage or wherever it was and rent a donkey for some purpose. We know that that was a local command. We know that was for them. It was for them for, in that specific context. But, and here's the problem, at least one of them, is there's a whole lot of times in the Bible where it's not that easy to work out if the commandment is universal or local. What about Genesis 1? Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Does that mean you're all supposed to get married? And some of you are like, yes, please. I've been desperately trying to get married for years. Others of you are like, oh my gosh, no. And then, if you are all supposed to get married, are you all supposed to have kids? You know, and if so, it says, be fruitful and multiply. So, two kids isn't enough. That's just addition. Okay, this is multiplication. I'm in. I am faithful and obedient, me and Kaya, to the word of God. And the rest of you get to work because it's in the Bible. Get cracking. But what about the fact that over the last 150 years, the global population has gone from like about 15 people to 7.7 billion people? What about the fact that food is actually a real issue? What about global warming? What about famine? What about water? Maybe we've actually fulfilled the commandment of Genesis 1, and some. Maybe we can check that off the list. Maybe now there's actually a moral imperative to have less children. <laughs> See, it's not always clear. Maybe I'm not helping. Uh, this is hard. Um, just to, to give you a heads up, I'm not giving you any answers today, by the way. Then what about the hundreds of commandments in the Torah? There's 613 of them, you know, the ones like in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, the ones we love, all of which I think Paul and the New Testament writers make pretty crystal, crystal clear that as followers of Jesus, we no longer have to obey. Um, so bacon's now kosher. Victory. You know, it's okay right now if you're wearing clothing made up of two kinds of material, right? Um, it's okay, just relax. There's no need to repent. You're not going to get stoned unless your clothes are made of hemp and you're smoking them somehow, right? It, it, what it, it means is that... What it means is that not all parts of the Bible are always authoritative for followers of Jesus all the time. But parts of it are. Really helpful. Because the question then is, which parts? Give me the, like, list. You know, and we might say, okay, well, maybe we'll just take the New Testament and we'll ditch the Old. Don't like the, don't like the Old Testament anymore. Too much blood and guts and gore. We'll ditch the Old Testament. We'll keep the New Testament. But then, I don't know, what do we do with commands in the New Testament like greet one another with a holy kiss? 
That's in there six times. Did you all greet one another with a holy kiss this morning? Culturally, that could be a bit strange. What does that mean? Do we just go, oh, well, we'll ignore that. That's not really for now. We don't really, I don't, I, I don't, you know, John walks into church and I give him a kiss. It feels uncomfortable. He might like it. You know, do we just ignore it? Or do we try and work out what we think is the principle behind it? And so we say, okay, well, we've reinterpreted that and it's now greet one another with a wholly appropriate sort of, um, but not too affectionate hug, um, but only if the other person actually wants you to and you're not invading their space. Do we just throw it out? You know, it's not in step with today's culture. Uh, it's not in step with the way that we do things. So should we just throw it out? But if we throw that out, what about the commands in the New Testament around sexuality? They're really out of step with what our culture thinks right now. And then what about the commands in the New Testament on divorce and on money and on judgment and on greed or on violence? You think there's a lot of unpopular stuff in the Old Testament? There's a lot of really, really uncomfortable stuff in the New Testament if you, if you read it. It's not all that clear. Hopefully, it will become clearer over the next few weeks. Uh, maybe it will become less clear. Today is really me just throwing the cat amongst the pigeons and thinking to myself that I really need to get some guest speakers to come here <laughs> over the next few weeks. So after the service, just keep your heads down and don't make any eye contact with me at all. If you want to explore it further, come tonight. Um, we've got evening service theology. We're going to carry on this conversation somehow this evening. Um, the short version summary as I come into land, which you'll be very glad to hear, is absolutely there are parts of the Bible that are authoritative, authoritative for us as followers of Jesus. And because we live under the authority of Jesus, we want to try and work this out together. That for me is like what the most important thing is about this, is um, I think we're supposed to work this stuff out in community. I think we're supposed to stay together in this, in our disagreements and in our misunderstandings of the scripture and of one another. I want this to be, one of the things Kate and I love about this church, there's so much that we love, but we love the, the way this church has become increasingly broad. It saddens me when the church finds itself as being either very monoculturally conservative evangelical or very, mono, very monoculturally liberal. And that if you're feeling yourself on the liberal end of the spectrum, you need to go to a liberal church where you're surrounded by other liberals who basically are all agreeing with everything you've ever said. Or you're just a conservative evangelical and you're like, we surround yourself with people who agree with everything that you say and everyone's right and we're all the same. What we want to see is a church whereby you've got liberals and conservative evangelicals sitting next to each other, discussing and debating and disagreeing with one another and saying, I think I'm totally wrong, I think I'm totally mad. But you know what? I love you and I'm in relationship with you, so let's continue to have this conversation. Let's continue to wrestle with this and grapple with this. I love the fact that this church has people who have said to me, if there is a homosexual in my house group, I want you to tell me because I do not want to have fellowship with them. That's not me. As long as it's not me, I, I, I don't mind. No, that's good. If there's a homosexual in my house group, tell me because I do not want to have fellowship with them. All the way through to practicing homosexuals. I love the fact that we're all sat together 
And we may or may not know those things about each other. But then how do we have those conversations about what's right, what's wrong, what do we think about that? What do we think the scriptures say? How would Jesus have us respond? Rather than just giving a carte blanche position and saying, this is the truth, I have told you, therefore, go and do. So I'm, we're wanting, again, that's what the evening service is about, we're wanting to create these spaces where we can have intelligent, honest, open dialogue and disagree with one another. Well, and as I say, bring all the wisdom, bring all the experience, bring all the expertise that so many of you have. Right? Bring it all onto the table. We love, we do, um, we're doing pub gospels, which we're just loving it. We just go to the pub on a Wednesday night and we sit around in the crooked billet and we open up the Bible and we all read the scriptures together. We're working through the Sermon on the Mount and we're in a public place looking at the scripture, reading it and going, what is, what is this about and how does this apply to my life? And there's all kinds of different perspectives and different takes. But it's just very refreshing doing that and working through trying to understand the scripture in community. I want us to carry on fostering an environment whereby we can work this stuff out together in community, in fellowship, in relationship with one another. We can't just pick and choose, which is um, sort of what we're doing all the time, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. You know, we love Jesus' message on love and the poor and social justice and on religious hypocrisy. We're like, yeah, Jesus, go for those religious hypocrites. We love all that stuff. But then, at the same token, in the same breath, we ignore Jesus' teaching on the Bible and how it's scripture, all of it, and how it's trustworthy and how it's authoritative. We ignore, we may not even realize it, but we ignore so much of what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce and sexuality and money, definitely money. Like we will wax lyrical about sexuality and same-sex attraction in the church. It's like our biggest, biggest bugbear. Money? Not a word. We can't just do that. We can't just pick and mix, either with Jesus or with the Bible. Otherwise, we end up following a Jesus and following a Bible made in our own image. And I know that it's hard. I'm not suggesting for any second that I have any answers. My encouragement as I finish, where to start, please read this. Let us not be a church whereby we're saying we live by this book, but we've never read it. Read it. Read it every day. Come before the Lord. Come and invite the Holy Spirit to come and help you as you read it. Read it on your own, but read it. Please, commit to reading it. Find some Bible reading Nicky Gumbel's Bible in a Year. Just fantastic. Such a fantastic resource, such a fantastic hub. There's loads and loads of stuff out there. But just read. Read this book, most importantly. And then, um, having read it, can I encourage you, can we encourage you to talk about it? Talk about what you're reading. Talk about it in your small groups. Talk about it, you know, when we meet here on a Sunday. Talk about it um, around over dinner, when you have dinner with one another. It's like, you know, I was reading this the other day, and this is what I felt, and this is what I felt like the Lord is saying. Let's create this culture and this climate whereby we're talking and discussing and working our way through what we think this means. Right, why don't you stand? Thank you very much for your patience. Um, I appreciate it hugely. Can we have the band back?